9 to 14, even if you did look at 9 last time as an additional one above the 1 to 8, why not? It's such a good story, isn't it? You want to keep going, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. When, when you were giving the notices, it, it reminded me of a time when Lynn and I were in a church in Oxfordshire or somewhere like that, and um, it was in the sort of uh, September, about this sort of time, and... Um, and uh, the way you were doing it, you were just feeling your way through. This guy said, right, okay, um, well, tomorrow, Monday, it's a, it's a junior church uh, fellowship tomorrow morning. Uh, no, no, not, not this week, because I haven't come back to school yet, so not this week. Oh, right, that's not happening this week. Okay, fine. <coughs> Tuesday, Women's Christian Fellowship. No, no, not this week. It's not the Women's Christian Fellowship this week. It's because they're going on their outing next week. And every single notice he gave, someone said, no, not this week. And he got to the end and he said, Next Sunday, 11 o'clock, we're in church. <laughs> no one criticised him for that. Let's, let's read then. I, I think we're going to have to read from verse 1. John will put up from 9 to 14 on the, on the board here, but let me just remind us of this, just to give the context. Again, it's familiar to you, but it's a great story. In my former book, writes Luke Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the, the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Father, this is your word. We have already heard you speak this morning through your word. This is your life-giving word to us. So may our hearts be open to receive it, Lord. And as we reflect upon it for a few moments, we ask that your Holy Spirit will show us more about who you are, so that we may live to your glory even more fully in the power of your Spirit. For Jesus' sake. 
Amen. I was once in a little group with a bishop um, meeting fairly regularly and he told us a story once when he was preaching in a, uh, on Ascension Day in a cathedral and he was preaching on Jesus going up into heaven and as he got to the part where Jesus disappeared up into heaven he was in a pulpit and he crouched down out of sight in the pulpit and then reappeared in the organ loft and carried on preaching. And everyone was agog. They kept doing that. He said it was wonderful. What he hadn't told him was he's one of an identical twin. <laughs> and his twin was also a bishop. And they were dressed identically. And their voice is very similar. So as he disappears down here, his brother stands up there and carries on. And his brother said their faces were just wonderful to look at. <laughs> They never did tell them. They never did tell them. Wonderful. Well, I, I can't do that. I'm not promising that anyone's going to appear in the balcony or anything like that. But this is a great story, isn't it? In, in April, on April the 21st, we celebrated Easter Day. We'd celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And on June the 9th was Pentecost. Fifty days later, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. But between the two, on May the 30th, was Ascension Day. It's a lesser festival and not observed by many churches. Usually Easter Day is by almost every church and certainly Pentecost is celebrated by many churches but many overlook Ascension Day. But Luke is the only Gospel writer who records this event. In fact, he's the only New Testament writer who records this event but he records it twice. At the end of his Gospel, to bring that to an end, at the beginning of his book, second book. Lynn and I have found some nice little documentary kind of programmes on TV where they divide them up into sections to get the adverts in. But have you noticed the way that when they start the next one, they sort of repeat a little bit of the first one, don't they? Just to sort of make you aware of what's going on. Assuming in the, in the interval you've forgotten. Um, but they do that. That's exactly what Luke is doing. He's written one book and he finishes it with the ascension, Jesus going up into heaven. And then he starts the next book, he reminds them, he goes over the stuff again. So there's an overlap. So that those who are reading the second scroll get the thing that, and understand what it's all about. But while it's a separate event from these other two, it belongs together. You cannot really separate the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension and exhortation of Jesus. They all belong together. You take one of those out and the whole thing begins to fall apart. So although the creeds take us from the birth to the death of Jesus, they don't do that to obliterate his life. They're assuming that's a taken. What they're saying, these are the contentious parts that we need to affirm in our creed. If you take any of those things away, take the birth of Jesus away, what have you got? An angel's come down from heaven, haven't you? He can't be a man if he's no birth, is there? You can do that with everyone. They all belong together. They all lead on to the next thing. God is doing something here. So, in this story so far, in Acts chapter 1, he's referred to the giving of Jesus' life as a gift for the salvation of the world in verse 3. He talks about his suffering. That reminds us of the life Jesus lived and the death he paid for our price. 
of salvation. In the same verse he talks about convincing proofs that he was alive, speaks of his resurrection. So very cleverly this storyteller is telling us, reminding us of the gist, if you like, of his gospel. The promise of the gift of the Spirit is referred to in verses 4, 5 and 8. And we haven't got there yet. He's constantly telling them, don't wait for this, it's going to happen, this wonderful event. And then the disciples are commissioned. And in addition to describing what this event is, he mentions it three times. In verse 2, until the day he was taken up into heaven. So as he's opening this second book, his first thing is to say, it's all about, I'm going to tell you about the Jesus who was taken up into heaven. And then in verse 11, twice he tells us about Jesus taken from you into heaven. He's, he has been taken from you and he will come back in the same way he's been taken from you. So he's really making a point here, isn't he? Repetition is a storyteller's device for saying this is important. So pay attention. So kind of drawing our attention to this. But what are the implications of the ascension. Why is it important? Would it matter if there hadn't been an ascension? Yes, it would. Let's put up one or two of those things. Here's the first thought. The ascension tells us that Jesus had completed what he had come to do. If you read through John's Gospel, as we've recently done, you'll constantly find Jesus saying, no, my time is not yet. No, my time is not. For you, any time is right. No, not for me. And then there comes a point when he said, the time has come. And it all then starts to run away. And then he's saying, I need to do this and I need to leave you. If I don't leave you, the Spirit can't come. It's not, he's saying, he's not saying there that he and the Spirit can't occupy the same space. That's nonsense. What he's saying is, until I finish what I came to do, he can't come to do what he will do to take this message on so the ascension tells us that everything Jesus had come to do has been completed. That's why Luke's Gospel begins just before his birth. It's the most complete one of his humanity and finishes with the ascension. That's the complete story of his humanity. The main thrust of that mission is indeed to lay his life down as a ransom for many. To reconcile the world to himself, to God himself in Christ. So the ascension therefore marks its completion because Jesus didn't do it to himself. His father raised him to life and his father drew him up. Rockets didn't appear on his feet to take him up into glory. That was an act of the father. So the incarnation is a picture, manifestation of God becoming man and of course the ascension is that man returning to his place of belonging. So not only did he pay for our sins in his body on the tree, but in the ascension he returns to the Father with the marks of his wounds in his hands and presents that to the Father. The high priest's task was to represent the people to God and to make the offering, not himself obviously, but to offer bulls and lambs and goats and things like that. But Jesus offered himself and took himself as an offering into the presence of of the Father. The ascension is God's seal of approval that the whole mission of Christ is complete, finished, done with. So what is the implication of that then? It's simply this, we can be totally confident that the Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes 
and there is no need for anything else. We are in danger always of every generation, I guess, but no less in our technological uh, generation when so much assaults us in all sorts of directions and we have to plough our way through all sorts of funny thinking, that we can forget that simple but profound truth that is, would take us a lifetime to understand that the gospel is everything we need. So in the ascension, God is saying yes to Jesus' life, yes to his death, yes to his resurrection, saying this is exactly what I wanted. This was in my heart from the beginning. This is what I meant when I said to Adam and Eve, and I promised the gospel right there, back in the early days. This is where it's all been going. I say yes and amen to all that. There's nothing to be added, nothing that is lost in any, any way. So we can believe that people are lost and need saving, and we should tell them so. That's what the mission's all about, isn't it? And we should know, too, that that salvation that they need is exclusively and utterly to be found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else in the whole world. And that those who look for truth will always find it there. They won't find it anywhere else. They may find a hint somewhere else, but it won't be the full thing. It will always turn them back, those who have open hearts, to Christ. That's the first thing. You can be absolutely confident. What is the greatest need of Britain today? Not a solution to Brexit. That is a huge issue that has vast consequences for the present generation and future generation. But it's not the biggest issue, is it? That one will be replaced by another one at some point or other. The biggest issue is salvation, isn't it? People need saving. And the trouble is this is all-consuming. And we can forget. It's not that the gospel is a little trite thing. It really is the truth. This is the thing that the world really needs and we need too. Here's another thing that is implication to this. That Jesus at this moment, right here and now, is the world's rightful Lord. Because we can have this view that one day he's coming back. More of that in a moment. Coming back and then he will be Lord of all. But that's not true. He already is Lord of all. This is what this is all about. Because he has been raised to the right hand of the Father. Seated in the heavenly places. Paul will say this. God exalted him, this is what's happening, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, not will be, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Paul wrestling through these truths and picks up thoughts and puts them together in these brilliant, brilliant letters. The enthronement of Jesus has already happened. He is Lord now. And therefore he rebukes everyone else who pretends to that role who says we are the most important person. In biblical times, the Jewish kings, the kings of Israel and Judah, knew for sure that they held their role as a gift from God and they were utterly accountable to God. They were not above the law. Of course, they were surrounded by kings who thought they were above the law and they were given fleas in their ear from time to time by prophets and other people. 
But the kings of Israel knew for sure that they were held their role below the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. We have tended to forget that in our day and think that the people with the most clout, most money, most fame, most fortune, whatever it may be, are the ones who really do make the decisions that will ultimately decide people's fates. No, they don't. And you read your Old Testament and you discover that's exactly how it happens. God says to great mighty kings, you won't stay like this for long if you keep on about this. This, this Nebuchadnezzar guy thought he was the most important person in the world and God humbled him in a most dramatic way to remind him that God can raise up kings out of anyone and bring them down. So this is really important that we know this, that though we respect and honour those who have positions of authority, we pray for those people in whatever context it will be. We respect the job they have to do. We will pray for them and ask for, and support them in every way we possibly can. We will give due credence to it. Ultimately, they are not the boss. We serve another king who has not abdicated at all, who's not wringing his hands in some distant part of the galaxy thinking, oh, however will they sort out this issue or that issue or the other issue. God is still in charge. Jesus himself said at the end of Matthew's Gospel, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, all the authority you can imagine has been given to him. Everyone holds their task by his permission. And here's an interesting thing, that this one who has returned to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, who, in how, whom all authority is given, is the one who prays for you and me. I find this staggering. Do you ever find yourself praying for people even this morning and think, I'm not quite sure what I should pray for Joe and Godfrey or the other people who were mentioned. I'm not quite sure what would be the right thing. And so we say lots of things. Sometimes my prayers are just wish lists. Lord, I sort of say something like, Lord, if you, know, if you would ask me, this is what I would hope for. Because I can't be more specific than that. But we have the Son of God, we have the Lord of glory, praying to his Father on our behalf interceding on our behalf. It's mentioned twice in the scriptures, once in Hebrews 7 verse 25 and once in Romans 8. He's interceding on behalf. Isn't that encouraging? Because when you read the Gospels and you see this man, you think, oh, I wish I could have seen him, don't you? I wish I could have said, Lord, I've got this problem. Can you sort it out for me? All those sort of issues that you just wish someone would understand and do something. Because you see all these pictures of people going and doing exactly that and he sorts them out without criticism, without a dismissive wave of his hand. He, he looks in their eyes, he understands, because he himself is a human being. He knows what it is to experience pain and sorrow and loss, as well as joy and delight and pleasure. That's the one who is praying for you. Isn't that extraordinary? I wonder if there's some way in which when we pray, Somehow or other, the Father senses our prayer joining the prayers of his Son. I don't know how that works. Do you know how prayer works? I don't know how it works. But somehow or other, that's what's happening. If he's praying for us, then my prayer would be, Lord, whatever your Son's praying for me, please, can I pray it too? Whatever your Son's praying for this person, can I pray it too? 
Can I join with that prayer? Because you can answer his prayers, I know that for sure. And he's interceding for you, so you know at any time, in any place, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you. So you can be absolutely confident about that. That it's a human being at the right hand of the Father. He says, Father, I know what they're going through. I've been there. He has felt our weaknesses. He has experienced every single temptation that we have. Because they come into categories, don't they? He doesn't have to have experienced every single temptation, but they come in categories. He knows what it means, but he has struggled through it. And won through, never gave in. He knows what it is to be a human being. And he's on your side. He knows about you and he's praying for I find that greatly encouraging, don't you? Greatly encouraging. So when you're just breaking apart or don't know what to do, you just think the Father is listening to the prayers of the Son and the prayers of the Spirit, Paul goes on to say as well. So two-thirds of the Trinity, Trinity are praying to the other third of the Trinity on our behalf. I get amazed by that. It doesn't mean everything's sorted out, but it's hugely encouraging, isn't it? Here's a thought, though, that we don't often realise. The ascension is vital to counteract some of the other pictures we have in the scriptures. We have a lovely scripture of the church, which is of the body of Christ. And here's the head and we are the body, is that right? The danger with that picture can be that we identify Jesus with the church. Because you don't separate a body, do you? The ascension tells us that Jesus is not the church and the church is not Jesus. He is separate from, because he has left earth and gone into heaven. It's very important because if the church thinks itself as Jesus, we become bossy, don't we? We think we have the right to do whatever we want. But the church's task, the witnesses, to be witnesses, is to point to Jesus. To recommend him. To promote him. Not to promote the church. Not to bring people to us. Except to say, come to me, then I can point you to Jesus. Come nearer to me, then I can show you where he is. Where you need to go. So, the thing about heaven and earth is, you see, we, we think spatially, don't we? And Christians still think that heaven is up there and earth is down here. And somehow or other, if we could find this planet on which heaven is, we'd find God. Some arrogant Russian cosmonaut once said that, didn't he? We've been up there, looked around, can't find him. There is no God. What an arrogant statement. Apart from, you know, knowing the fact that the universe is almost limitless, almost, but it's created so it can't be limitless. It's not more of the same with a curtain between the two. It's of a different kind entirely, but it joins together. In the beginning there was heaven and earth and they were joined together. In the end there will be heaven and earth and they were joined together. At the moment they're separate because of sin. So you can't live in both. There's only one person who can live happily in both and it's Jesus. He's happy in both kinds of space, both kinds of matter. C.S. Lewis suggested that sci-fi films have shown us a way that parallel universes can work. Well, whether that's true or not. The thing is that Jesus is separate from his church. He is the Lord. We are the church and he has every right to say, this is what you do. 
get on and do it. And he gave us his Holy Spirit so that we can get on and do it. And we do what we do to the glory of Jesus. And point people to Jesus, not to ourselves, to him. We are his people, but he's separate from us. Because if we let, if we think that Jesus is identical with the church, we will overemphasize the importance of the church. And to be honest, over the centuries we've got too big for our boots, haven't we? At different times and done things that now make us cringe in shame, don't they? To think what the church has done through the centuries. It's because we've got too big a view of how important we are. Jesus is the all-important one. Who are we? We're just his followers. That's not to denigrate us, but it's to put us in the rightful place. Jesus stands over his church, apart from his church, and addresses it as its Lord. So the one who is present with us by his spirit is the one who is separate from us, strangely absent from us. We need to remember this. It is important, because otherwise we have to go through mental gymnastics about, well, if he's here with me, where is he, how can he be with you there? It all gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? But if he's not here in this profound way, then he is everywhere else. He rules the present rebellious world in its right, as its rightful Lord. So heaven and earth relate to another another in a way that allows anyone in heaven to be anywhere on earth. Got that? Anyone in heaven can be anywhere on earth. That's how it relates. I don't know how that works, but that's the reality. So Jesus is in heaven, but he can be anywhere on earth because that's the way it works. It's just that we haven't the capacity to comprehend the reality of what heaven really is. So they're talking here. They're, the first Christians never thought of Jesus going up into a distant galaxy and sitting there for a while before he comes back again. They didn't think that. They knew that God was in a different context. So that means that the ascension means that Jesus is always available and he's always accessible to all his people, wherever they are. They don't have to go to him. You, we don't have to go to Israel to see Jesus. 2,000 years ago we would have had to do that, but not now. You don't have to go anywhere particularly. You don't have to go to church, you don't have to go to a cathedral, you don't have to go to any special place. God has special places, I believe, on earth. But you don't have to go to them because he's everywhere. So we can rest secure in the knowledge that wherever we are, he is. So we pray for Joe and Godfrey. Not that Jesus would say, okay, I'll get on the next flight over to them and pass on your good news and sort of, then I'll bring back the answer. Some nonsensical way like that. He is with us. We are somehow joined together because he can be through heaven anywhere on earth. And prayer connects us in that particular way. And because he's also the God of time, he can correct our timings too. So even if we, there was a case of a missionary in Africa who uh, was working with children and she was a medical missionary and she was looking after premature babies and this is in, in Equatorial Africa and um, in the heat there and premature babies of course uh, it, at night it gets very cold so they needed water bottles to keep them warm. The water bottle burst as it would do in the heat and climate of Africa and so they didn't have anything. 
So she got one of the nurses to sort of wrap her body around this little premature child to keep her warm. But they prayed that day that God would supply, one of the little children in the group played that, that God would supply a water bottle. Who is going to send a water bottle to Equatorial Africa? The next day one arrived. It had been sent three months before in a parcel by a group of people praying for these folk. And amongst all the things that they thought they might need was a water bottle. God could do anything with timings, can't he? Long before they prayed that prayer, the answer was on its way. And someone had never heard that. It was, it was just one of those things, put one of those, and you can imagine what they might have thought. What? A water bottle? So don't worry about timings either, because God can work that. Heaven relates to earth in this kind of dynamic way. It means that he'll never leave you, never forsake you. There can be nowhere you go on earth where he will not be. And no time. And of course the last thing I'll just point out to you this morning, which is what the angels say here of course, is the ascension assumes the return of Jesus. We talk about the return of Jesus Christ as if he's gone away and he's going to have to come back again and he's timing a visit. But if heaven and earth relate in this way, dynamic way, then he's here already in this particular way. So the Bible also talks about the appearing of Jesus which is actually a much more dramatic thing. He will suddenly appear, not because he's gone away and he's going to come back, but because suddenly the thin membrane between heaven and earth will be taken away. And at this point, all things come together under heaven in Christ. And heaven and earth are joined as they always should have been in this way. That's why we're going to need new bodies, my friends, because they, these bodies can't cope can't cope with the reality of heaven, but we'll have a new body. And so his return is going to be that glorious time when the one who's gone into heaven will come back, the one who's ruling from heaven will come back, reappear, and bring all things together in this brilliant way. And so in the meanwhile then, in the meanwhile then, the, the Gospels tell us the story of how Jesus showed us the kingdom comes. That's why we're given the long stories of the gospel, not just to pack in the bit between the birth and death of Jesus, but to show us this is the kind of kingdom, and this is the kind of way the king wants his kingdom brought in. So then you have the book of Acts, showing how those early Christians understood that. Did they go around lording it over everyone? Not a bit of it. Suffering and persecution was part of their role. The method of the kingdom matches the message of the kingdom. That is where the kingdom comes as the church, energised by the spirit, goes out into the world vulnerable, weak, suffering, praising, praying, misunderstood, misjudged, vindicated, celebrating, bearing in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be seen. And these early apostles quickly grasped that the coming of the Spirit was not to make them the lords of the, king, of the world, not at all. There is one Lord, and his name is Jesus. It was to equip them to live the same kind of life he had lived on earth, in the power of the same Spirit, to do the same things he had been done, he had done, to his glory. And people were attracted in their droves, initially by this winsomeness of people filled with the Spirit, living ordinary lives to the glory of God, saying, this is the one. 
This is the one knowing full well that Jesus was with them, Lord of all that. So they could go anywhere. Nowhere was outside the scope because they weren't ramming anything down anyone's throats. They were saying, you want to know who really is in charge? Let me tell you. What a glorious message. So I hope we can go out this week, this week, knowing that this is the age of grace. It is a day of salvation, Paul says. The crying need for all people, not least today, is to be saved. That is the crying issue, to know who is really in charge. And I think, not to put too big a thing on it, I think there's demonic influence at bay, trying to distract us completely away from that and to fill our minds with all sorts of other worries and fears and anxieties. It doesn't take much, does it, to distract us and we somehow have to keep living out this message of hope and goodness even as we pray for those who have the responsibility of sorting out the mess we're in so father we thank you for the truth of the ascension we thank you that jesus is here now lord of all we are those who we bow before him and proclaim him lord of all and we ask that as you fill us day by day with your spirit this week we may live this joyful message and give hope to our friends and neighbours all around. Will you sharpen up the gifts and skills we've got this week, Lord, so that we can do the things you've trained us and gifted us to do, that it all may bring glory and honour to your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen.